This is not a commercial announcement. I repeat, this is not a commercial announcement. The producers and distributors of this film advise against, I repeat, advise against anyone seeing it who is easily frightened. Well, he actually succeeded in designing a totally new life form. I mean, something that has never existed before. Resilient, intelligent, and I think very deadly. He told me once that if it ever grew up, it would probably be very dangerous. These are photographs, but there hasn't been another expedition to No. These were found here on Earth, thousands of them. They come from outer space. Why not? How many worlds are there in the universe? Millions, perhaps billions. Unless they come from much closer, but... I don't want to do this podcast, so we'll keep it brief, and I'll explain along the way. I never had any big plans to do an Aliens podcast. Podcasting takes up a lot of my free time, so I don't get to do a lot of reading solely for pleasure. Aliens became my favorite movie when I saw it in 1986, and I have a strong interest in the franchise, but I never successfully made the leap into reading the extremely successful and long-lived comic adaptation. I mean, think about it. How many media licenses have decades of near-continuous publication in this industry? Conan. Star Wars, Star Trek, Transformers, Doctor Who. I'm not used to properties I have a passion for having that broad of an audience. But still, with the comics, I'd repeatedly faltered in buying the floppies. And I had little interest in the Dark Horse omnibuses with their puny trim size and funky collation. I'm at a place where I can afford real omnibuses. The ones built like a family Bible that weigh as much as a medium-sized dog. The new Marvel editions were hardcover, impressively comprehensive, loaded with extras and rarities, topped with new cover art. That said, the goddamn things are still $125 retail, and I wasn't going to buy them indefinitely for posterity. Committing to finally reading these stories in chronological order and absorbing that effort into my podcasting just seemed like the best way to complete a task. This becoming the first Rollsbine podcast to come out on a reliable schedule since we abandoned the weekly format for the Marvel Superheroes podcast was a happy accident. A big help was this being our first hybrid podcast, where I can go back and forth between solo and collaborative episodes. Trust that I could have gotten Spawnometer out 12 times a year if I'd adopted the format sooner. But another huge bonus was that a lot of listeners and fellow podcasters were keen to discuss the golden age of Aliens comics, which I'll define as the pioneering material generated before the release of Alien 3. The first black and white miniseries, the first one with painted color art, the first one to feature Ripley and fully take place on an infested Earth, the original Aliens vs. Predator, the earliest best-selling miniseries with aliens and predators versus other properties, the maxi-series devoted to popular concepts like the Colonial Marines, or Chris Claremont's first major work after leaving X-Men. But 1993, the year we finally finished covering on this episode was a lot. It's peak speculation bubble, with Dark Horse absolutely flooding the market with Aliens material in the year of the third installment. Alone and with help, we tackled that deluge. And I'm coming out the other end exhausted. I'm not alone either. Many of my comrades up to this point have finished their reading experience or overall interest in this franchise. All the hands that were raised at the beginning of this project have gone 
on down. Entering year three, I'm faced with the daunting prospect of more or less starting over. My most likely candidates for co-hosting are folks I haven't talked to in years who are still waiting for prior recordings for projects like the Marvel Handbook to see release. I'm not ready to go to them hat in hand, begging for more of their time when they haven't seen a return on their previous investment. Further, the material going forward simply isn't as compelling in what I consider the second phase of the Alien show. We just finished the last content where I had to choose between candidates for the recording. For instance, the original plan was to cover the Aliens magazine serial Sacrifice as part of the third Aliens Omnibus episode. After the Salvation episode, Del Dracula promptly volunteered, seeing a thematic overlap, which makes sense that they were collected together into one trade paperback. It became clear during the recording session that the conversation had blossomed to full episode length, so I figured that I'd just rearrange the material for the Omnibus episode. Now, Del had also expressed an interest in covering Crusade, but I shut that down quickly. His previous two episodes were among the best I've ever been associated with, so I was not going to spoil that with the Godfather Part 3 of Aliens podcast. Crusade is not a worthy story to form a trilogy, even if there were strong superficial similarities to Salvation and Sacrifice. They all revolve around transposing Catholic imagery and ideology upon an alien's framework. In fact, Crusade is much more overt than either of the other two in its religious affectations. However, Crusade is the rock's stupid cousin, mindlessly going through the stations of the cross. Look, let me throw the verbatim Xenopedia entry onto a text audio program to cover the details. There's a lot of text, so mind the shifting from the surprisingly good one that sounds like Melanie Linsky doing an American accent, which of course had a low limit of free reading time, and the more flexible basic reader I finished up with. Aliens Crusade is a 10-part comic book story that was first published in incomplete form by Dark Horse International and Aliens Magazine, Volume 2, Number 13 through Number 20, from July 1993 to February 1994. It was written by Michael Cook, illustrated by Christian Gorney, colored by Nick Abadzis, lettered by Woodrow Phoenix, and edited by Stephen Ridout. Aliens Magazine, Volume 2 Number 13 and Number 18 also featured Aliens Crusade covers by Chris Halls. The ambitious, richly illustrated story dealt with the fate of England during the xenomorph invasion of Earth, as chronicled in the early Aliens comics from Dark Horse. Aliens Crusade's cancellation partway through its run and incomplete nature for years made it unique among Aliens comics. Its final two chapters exist alongside a limited number of Aliens comics that have never been released anywhere, including Aliens Hive Wars Aliens Colonial Marines Rising Threat and Aliens Matrix, which, like Crusade, was curtailed by the cancellation of Aliens magazine. Originally, only the first eight parts of the comic were published. The ninth and tenth installments were set to appear in Aliens magazine, volume 2 number 21 through number 22, but were delayed until issues 23 to 24 to allow the artists extra time to complete them. Aliens magazine was then cancelled after issue 22 as Dark Horse International, the company responsible for publishing the magazine, went out of business. This left the remaining two episodes of the comic unpublished, and for years Crusade was unique among Aliens comics in that it was an incomplete, unfinished story. The missing conclusion remained unreleased for some 28 years until Marvel Comics included the complete story in their Aliens, the original year's Volume 2 collection in 2022. The previously unreleased section was presented in black and white, as the art for the finale was never colored before the series was cancelled. My primary motivation for buying Marvel's Aliens, the original year's Omnibus Volume 1, was the inclusion of the newspaper 
Super Serial Countdown, the trading card story alone, and especially the Space Marines mini-comics packaged with the Kenner action figures. Yes, I'd always wanted to read all the Aliens material I'd passed on in the crummy little Dark Horse 1D collections, but having those rarities and a high-quality presentation sealed the deal. I started this show to motivate myself to read enough of that first volume to ensure that sinking dough into the second wasn't a foolish waste of money. I'd always wanted to read Colonial Marines, but again, what sealed the deal was Crusade. Not only had that story never been reprinted outside the relatively rare Aliens magazine, but it had never been printed in full at all until Marvel's second omnibus. According to Comic Vine, there was a trade in 2013, but it looks more like a digital download from Dark Horse and certainly isn't available anymore. There was no alternative, as I had to tell Odell repeatedly because he really wanted that trilogy. It's $39.99 digitally for Kindle and Comixology, $125 cover price on the hardcover, though Amazon has added a premium to the tune of $139.99. I got a good deal on mine by pre-ordering, paying no more than a C note, but that's still a lot of cheddar for what I got. Of the material in this volume that we've covered so far, I will at most reread Salvation and Sacrifice, Rogue and Labyrinth, all available elsewhere for much cheaper. I'm not sorry that I own the volume, as it's handsome with its sibling on my bookshelf, and I'm glad that I could be comprehensive in our coverage. That said, I barely got through Crusade the first time, and knowing that now, I'd have maybe gone with a digital download or skipped it entirely. The writing on the early chapters is atrocious. I wasn't certain I would even finish it the first time. Michael Cook had apparently done a strip in 2008 called Dead Meat that was well enough received to be reprinted stateside by Fleetway Quality as a three-issue miniseries. Earlier that same year, 1991, he'd done a six-installment strip in Crisis called The Real Robin Hood that apparently didn't rate the same treatment. With no work released in 1992, Crusade was his first and last follow-up in the comics field. He supposedly moved into television and film, but IMDb has no evidence of this. Plot synopsis reads, Earth War. The very thought of it still brings fear to the hearts and small pockets of humanity which survived the global xenomorph infestation. The fear, rage, and greed of Minecorp and its high-paid, high-tech unit of elite corporate mercenaries offer an alien's cleanup service for the right price. After nuking and mopping up a swarm of bugs in the Middle East, the triumphant hired guns return to home base where they're given their next assignment. It appears that one city, on a small mining island off the west coast of Europe, had mysteriously warded off the alien plague, and Minecorp is eager to find out why, and if the answer could be turned into profit. But when a reconnaissance flight disappears with two of their own, a group of mercenaries sets off for this once proud capital of an empire that spanned the globe, but has now fallen on desperate times. London, circa 22nd century, has descended into a tribal existence operating on territorial imperatives. Ronnie, a seer in this tribe, fears that the reports from a rival cast of monsters stalking the city are true, but can offer no concrete proof. Though the revelations of the mercenaries about the global xenomorph infestation confirm her views, the others in the tribe, particularly the leader, Artie, remain unconvinced. The early chapters unfold via dialogue with the atavistic English, speaking in such thick techno-jargon as to be rendered babble. Someone more attentive may have a firmer grasp on the timeline of these comics, but I was the impression that we'd only gone a few months or probably years out from the Earth War? Was there a timeline jump I didn't catch? Sacrifice clearly took place a couple of decades out from the present Alien comics, but I took that as an outlier. Was there a time jump in Alien 3, like there was between Alien and Aliens? I didn't think so, and can't recall mention of it. Surely the facehugger would have struck relatively soon, or else Newt's corpse would have been long since decomposed. And of all people to regress to a tribal state, the bloody British? Look, it would have made loads more sense to set 
the story in Australia or even New Zealand. They're at least properly isolated and have natural resources. England is a tiny island within spitting distance of Europe that has spent the last several years in terror of having to follow through on Brexit. If they could be properly cut off from the rest of the world, I can see the satirical value in this regression. But in the time and places meant to happen, it makes no sense. Further, Prometheus takes place in 2093, Alien in 2122, Aliens in 2179, and Resurrection in 2379. Yet everyone in those pictures speaks in language entirely familiar to late 20th century audiences. I don't think anyone from 1966 would have that much trouble with our lingo today, although I'm not confident a modern kid would know what lingo meant. But there's no way we could hold a conversation with someone from 1807, the same gap in years from 1986 to the setting of the movie Aliens. It's a storytelling conceit of the screenwriters because alienating the audience with incomprehensible dialogue is fucking stupid as shit. Even if Cook wanted to contrast the barbarous locals against the corporate mercenaries, maybe orient us with the former before we're all exposed to the latter? Anyway, if the writing gets us off on the wrong foot, the art is a second left foot with no right foot to be found. Nikabadzis is one of the few colorists that I can recognize on site thanks to his horribly flat, washed out, often monochromatic work on Marvel UK titles like Children of the Voyager. I dislike his work immensely on its own, and it outright sabotages any chance for Christian Gorney to make a good impression either. Gorney had done some work on the German edition of Heavy Metal, along with similar magazines in his native country. His early installments on Crusade look extremely undercooked, more like layouts with missing elements and little to no backgrounds. A good colorist could have smoothed over some of those mistakes and oversights, but Abadzis actually highlights them by not even trying to figure out what Gorney was failing to render. That and he's going in with extremely early computer coloring effects to spray paint shadows over Gorney's facial lines. On top of all of this, most of the events take place in a barren desert, with the non-natives being soldiers in identical paramilitary gear and gas masks with red lenses. Everybody is hung from Resident Evil 2. And again, this is meant to be England, although that will become a sitting grace as the story progresses. Meanwhile, the mercenaries have arrived in London in an armored personnel carrier, which provides a very real threat to the low-tech locals who go on the offensive, stranding the vehicle on a motorway ledge. Come nightfall, a group of cloaked men abduct some villagers and transport them to an ominous cathedral in the center of the city. En route, one of their party is attacked by a facehugger and the stricken individual is handed over to the church's archbishop, who drags him up to the cathedral's tower. Come nightfall, a group of cloaked men abduct some villagers and transport them to an ominous cathedral in the center of the city. En route, one of their party is attacked by a facehugger and the stricken individual is handed over to the church's archbishop, who drags him up to the cathedral's tower. There, the doomed soul comes face to face with an alien queen, just as a chestburster erupts from his sacrificial body. Back at the village, the tribe's people accuse the outsiders of causing the disappearance of their fellow villagers, and place them in chains. Ronnie doesn't accept this and helps them escape, joining the spacemen in their mission to unlock the sinister secrets of the city which may also help her find her missing soulmate, Martha. They flee on stolen horses and head for cover in the city's long-disused transport tunnels. 
A surprise sniper attack eliminates Mine Corpse Huxley, but the others finally find refuge in the tunnels, or so they think. A sort of medieval civilization exists further inland, and once we have recognizable structures, the artist demonstrates some proficiency with architecture. He got a priest with his funny little pope hat and dudes in cloaks, and he finally gets some differentiation. From part three, the artist discovers Liam Sharp, and to some degree becomes a different illustrator. For no clear reason, other than the artist got sick of drawing them, the corporate soldiers are captured and forced to doff all their clothes by the tribesmen. Then they get accused of kidnapping the people the robe guys have made off with, and they all have to sneak off with the one sympathetic native woman with red hair. So now everybody's in loincloths or underwear, and the main way to tell the two groups apart is that one wears helmets and carries what advanced weaponry they can scramble out with. Also, everybody has fit gym bodies, something Christian Gorney channeling Liam Sharp can draw attractively, if not fully competently. You still can't tell people apart, and all these mostly naked dudes with guns feels like a gay porn parody, but at least only one person is still speaking in pure gibberish. Chapter by chapter, you can see the artist incorporating more and more Liam Sharp into his work, until all the women look like Jim Lee's Jean Grey. My mind went mushy after a while, but I think the two missions were to rescue some guy's wife and to learn the secret of why the aliens didn't thrive in England. Maybe the guy dies? I think the wife lives? Again, the women look alike, and there was a cliffhanger in one chapter that indicated she was exposed to a facehugger. Oh, and about that, England is rotten with xenomorphs. The big secret is that the priest guy was somehow containing an alien queen and her brood in a church tower for long enough for British society and language to backslide centuries? <sighs> but only just now got caught slipping. Except everything everywhere is coming up chestburster. Like the horses they rode in on from the tribal grounds were infested. You could chalk it up to bad timing, but then how'd all them aliens stay contained for any length of time at all? And by what means besides stone castles and moats? Not the aliens I know. When two chestbursters erupt from their horses, they know that their motion trackers might be picking up more than rats. In the tunnels they are set upon by a horde of fully grown aliens who wreak bloody havoc, separating Channon, the leader of the mercenaries, from Ronnie and the remaining mine corps prep, Faustin, who narrowly elude the aliens. Channon emerges from the tunnels only to be set upon by another tribe, where she meets Leslie Sale, the wife of one of her team, Faustin, and a member of an earlier mine corps survey that went MIA with Sale's help. They take a deadly boat ride down the Thames and to apparent freedom. The fact that the group had encountered fully grown aliens meant the creatures had breached the security of the city's cathedral where Archbishop Mahan had nurtured them alongside their queen in a foolish attempt to contain their evil within the church. Some of Mahan's congregation are becoming suspicious that this man of God is in league with the devil when one of the bishops announces the arrival of an off-worlder, Faustin, who has a very curious tale to tell. They inform Mahan that his plan has failed and that there are aliens roaming the city. Mahan refuses to concede that they have anything to fear as long as they trust in God and appease the aliens in their keeping. A pity the well-fed aliens don't see it that way, as they chase the archbishop and his guests from the cathedral and into the arms of their brood waiting outside. In the end, everything descends into chaos and an undifferentiated, nudie militia blasts its way out of the church. The priest that was able to hang with and sort of worship the alien queen while feeding her nest random victims as a sort of tithe tries to peacefully stand by his mother god, but in the excitement of face hugger lands on him. Besides being another story, taking clear cues from the various Alien 3 screenplays involving religious themes and monks, Crusade also seems to be borrowing elements from salvation and sacrifice, the way the artist is stealing wholesale from Liam Sharp. The color finally goes 
nose out, even though a Marvel intern could have done spot fills one afternoon, and it would have been at least comparable to Abadzis's quote-unquote effect. A couple of Baywatch babes, I think the female lead and the rescuee, and a random mercenary dude with a mustache. Oh wait, that's the husband, so it's the husband and the wife. Okay, yeah, that's right. They make it to a small motorboat as the church explodes in the distance. I don't recall if there was something in the place that could explode, but I now know what an Andy Sedaris-directed alien movie would have looked like. You'll have to ask someone more on the ground if that ending was worth waiting 30 years for, but I'd guess nobody was actually waiting for resolution, magazine subscriber or no. That's nearly 100 pages of my life that I'm never getting back. Cook and Gorney were scheduled to be the creative team on the Marvel UK title Gene Machine, but just as the Crusade chapters were delayed until Dark Horse International's collapse, the glacial pace of the arts production kept it out of public view until Marvel UK followed them into oblivion. Now that is the proper ending to an alien tale. With the threat narrowly averted via the catastrophic destruction of a capitalist enterprise. Nuke from orbit. Only way to be sure. Okay, so we've established the Crusade is a relatively rare story that was not reprinted from its debut in 1983 until last year. I considered calling in Billy Hines, who had also wanted to chat about Salvation and Sacrifice, to give him a forum and then inserting my Crusade material in afterwards. Still, that didn't seem fair to either Billy or Dell, and I've already got something lined up with Hines for next month. It was also weird to start an omnibus with a story only I had read. My recollection was that Billy had not bought any of the UK Aliens magazines, and I frankly don't know who did, so that wasn't really an angle. And again, the story is D-U-M-B dumb, so why inflict that on others? Further, when I pulled Sacrifice out of the Omnibus episode, I needed a new third story, because does the duology really rate as an Omnibus? Looking ahead, I figured I could rope in Ryan Daly to read a two-parter from Dark Horse Presents with art by Bernie Wrightson. However, when I reached out, he hadn't actually read the story and had no ready access to it. Fine, I could do that on my own, except with further research, it turned out to be a prelude to a Batman vs. Aliens miniseries recovering later, so that's out. What about Lucky? Well, that's the 10-year reunion of Vera Hayden and Nelson. Surely somebody who missed talking about that creative team on the first pass would like a shot at it? Headhunters? Well, that's way off in 1997 with the creative team of Mike W. Barr and Gene Colan. I could probably get a non-aliens type to discuss that story. Maybe an outsider's reader or another invite to Ryan. Borderlines or Purge would have been good options, but I confess that I missed those in the text doc when I was casting about. Tourist season was a candidate as I might be the only person interested in a Bo Smith, Gray Morrow team up. Man, I was really going to have to stretch the premise to find that third story. What I did have set, though, was the Operation Aliens trading card story. This one should have been a slam dunk. Xenopedia has the trading card set up on their site. I could call my father on the phone, get him to navigate the website, and do the whole thing by remote. It's just a shame I missed the opportunity to talk to a Den Beauvais fan who missed recording with me on Volume 2. But then again, neither option ultimately came to pass. Let me throw it back to the text reader. Operation Aliens is a trading card format comic that was published by Dark Horse comics as part of the Aliens Predator Universe trading card set from Tops in January 1994. It was written by Jerry Prosser and illustrated and colored by Den Beauvais. Operation Aliens has never been collected or reissued. The comic consists of 15 trading cards. Together they form a short story set within the Alien universe. Certain elements in the comic are derived from the Aliens toy line from Kenner. Operation Aliens is one of two Aliens stories from Dark Horse Comics that was released exclusively as part of a trading card set, the other being Alien 3 alone, included with the Alien 3 trading card set from Star Picks. While Alien 3 alone has since been collected by Marvel Comics, 
Operation Aliens remains exclusive to the Aliens Predator Universe trading cards. Among the elements taken from the Aliens toy line from Kenner are the special equipment used by some of the Marines, and Xenomorphs adopting traits from a variety of different hosts. Operation Aliens is notable as one of the few Aliens stories to depict the scientific procedure of gene splicing to create spliced Xenomorphs. Gene splicing is also a plot device in Aliens, Rogue, and two Aliens crossover series. Batman, Aliens 2 and Predator vs. Judge Dredd vs. Aliens, Splice and Dice. References made in the card's story include the Grant Corporation from Aliens, Genocide, Prometheus, and a reference to a previous encounter the Colonial Marines had with Xenomorphs on the planet, Arcturus 4. An obvious nod to Frost's line about Arcturians in the film Aliens. In reality, Arcturus is the fourth, brightest star in the night sky. Plot, scientists studying the Xenomorphs at Grant Corporation Station 13 send out a distress call when their specimens get loose and begin rampaging through the base. Video uplink, emergency channel, priority blue, code op Prometheus, transmission contents as follows. My, My God! This is Grant I've got it. You've got it. And transmission. The signal is passed on to Lieutenant Roberta Benitez of the United States Colonial Marine Corps, who is ordered to mount a rescue and sterilization mission. Lieutenant Benitez cleared her throat, still dry and chalky from an extended hypersleep. There you have it, folks. Last message I have received from Station 13. Control hasn't monitored any transmission since this one, but Control wants inspection and possible sterilization. Any questions? Corporal Simmons asks. What are the chances we'll find these? survivors. With a practiced but tenuous calm, Lieutenant Benitez said. Slim. A while back, I was on a survey mission with a group of corporate techs. People started disappearing one or two a night. Suddenly, after a week, only four of us were left. Then they came, and I was the only survivor. Benitez and her Marines land on the moon base and begin the search for survivors. Grant Corporation Station 13 was on a moon in a mostly unsurveyed sector. The atmosphere was breathable, but tasted of copper and lemons. Everybody maintain personal locator and radio contact. I don't want anybody getting separated. Benitez said. Anderson. Dust off as soon as we were clear. Be here ready for pickup. Looks like a real war zone. Simmons said. Benitez felt an old fear prick at the dead nerves of her scarred face. Some kind of molecule acid. The creatures use it for blood. Don't get any of you. Believe me. Laswell spoke up. Can the chair, Marines. I'm picking up movement on my tracker. They are soon attacked attacked by xenomorphs and forced deeper into the complex, taking casualties along the way. Benitez only saw a hint of shadow out of the corner of her eye, blacker than black, before the creatures fell on the squad with a silent, primal ferocity. The marine's pulse rifle broke the, the silence and the dark, but the creatures kept coming. Go! I'll follow! Simmons yelled as he opened fire. The way out was blocked. 
Simmons knew the squad's only chance was to head deeper into the complex. Simmons knew he wouldn't be joining them but felt a cold anticipation as he prepared to sacrifice himself for his friends. He wouldn't go without a fight. Benitez saw Laswell and Simmons fall but they bought the squad time to escape. As Benitez ran deeper into Station 13, some of the creatures followed but they looked different than what she had encountered on Arcturus 4. Something familiar about them, a bull, a gorilla, a snake. What happened on Station 13? Several of the aliens they encounter are strange new forms resembling bulls, gorillas, and snakes, created by the scientists through gene splicing. Percy was at the computer. I've managed to seal the lab, Lieutenant. He said. Benitez checked one of the scientists. This one is alive, Burley. Percy, can you find us a way out of here? There's an access tunnel on the other side of the lab. I've also found files on gene splicing and these creatures. Benitez understood. Had Grant Corporation attempted to alter the genetic structure of the xenomorph, domesticate them. These scientists would never understand that pure hunger could never be controlled or imprisoned. It would always find a way to escape. As if to prove her correct, Benitez spun as she heard the sound of shattering glass. Benitez and her men moved through the access corridor Percy had found on the lab's computer, only to realize they were passing through the egg chamber of an alien hive. Percy used his flamethrower on the queen. Her screams were terrible. Benitez signaled to Anderson in the dropship. They make it to the dropship and take off. Percy was the last to reach the dropship. I've set fire to the whole works, he said. How do you like your eggs cooked, Commander? Benitez doubted that she'd ever eat an egg again. Anderson, get on the horn to control. I want permission to nuke the site from orbit. Benitez didn't have long to wonder about the military's connection to Station 13. Control quickly granted permission for sterilization. It wouldn't look good to the folks back home if word got out about genetic experiments with aliens. As Anderson armed the missiles, a shadow fell over the ship. A fly Queen. The Queen attacked the flying object. Retribution for the terrible, burning deaths of her beloved offspring. Retribution for the obscene manipulation of her brood by the soft ones. Anderson banked the ship, bringing the forward missiles into firing position, and fired. The screams of the burning Queen were lost in the moon's coppery air. The pilot successfully kills the creature with missiles before returning to their starship in orbit and destroying Station 13 with a nuclear strike. Benitez sends off her mission report. Mission log. Lieutenant Roberta Benite. Two good men dead. Sterilization complete. When will we learn? End of report. End of transmission. Okay, so back to exploring my options. My father sounds like absolute shit on his old school analog home phone, especially when he uses his headphones. Plus, we haven't talked since Christmas, and I don't want to change that for an Aliens podcast. My girlfriend is basically working seven days a week at the moment, and I think we got her Aliens backstory on the record already. I've been saving my partners, Illegal Machine, and Mr. Fix-It for a rainy day, but they're also pretty busy, and I'd want them to get a full episode to themselves, both because they would have a lot to say, and because I could subject them to many series I wouldn't foist onto others. Mac had done a quick segment for a previous Omnibus episode, but I didn't want him to anchor another without any additional guests. Besides, burning through the short stories in one place, the other purpose for the Omnibus episodes was a showcase for guests who don't have enough to say about the franchise to fill their own episode. And what about guests? I didn't have any lined up. Some prospects declined, and the unexpected volunteer I had seemed to miss that we had already covered the material they requested, and then ghosted me when I offered an alternative. Do I really want to 
to cover the next phase of Aliens comics all on my own, and it felt like I had only just put out the Sacrifice episode with Dell. Stupid short month February with its last Wednesday landing on the 22nd. I'm aliens out over here. Can't I catch a break? It stressed me out. But then I finally got some traction. I reached out to some of the guys I'd previously relied upon to secure their participation in more episodes. Fixit saw Quantumania last Friday, and after Matt caught it Sunday, they agreed to record with each other on Monday. I'd been set on doing this show that Wednesday, but with the traffic jam, I could always defer to the following Tuesday to maintain Dark Horse Presents' two-year attendance record. I drafted a new schedule through episode 50, and there are a lot of crossovers coming to entice new guests with. That's structure up to the back half of 2025, and it's within the 10-year publication gap of Aliens and Predator comics, where there's only crossovers and movie adaptations. Even when they resume in 2009, the pace is much more relaxed, and anyway, I never guaranteed anyone I would carry on into the revival periods. But one final stupid piece fell into place that put my soul at ease. The Alien Special. Two black and white stories by not especially exceptional talents, one of them silent. I knew that it was coming in the future, but I didn't know what to do with it beyond tossing it into an omnibus episode. But see, if this wasn't an omnibus episode, compelling me to maintain my conception of what that should entail, why couldn't an Alien Special just be me hand-wringing and cajoling listeners to step up and put their names in the hat for those future episodes? Sort of like a March of Dimes telethon, but with people putting their mouths instead of their money in. Hell, I could even dump all the menial labor on a robot. Yeah, I'm the one who gave Chad GPT the existential crisis. It hurt I'd penciled it in for the Music of the Spears episode and lost its shit. Aliens, 45 Seconds is a comic book short story that was first published by Dark Horse Comics and Aliens special in June 1997. 45 Seconds and Elder Gods are notably two of seven black and white aliens comics from Dark Horse that have never been reprinted in color. Publisher's Summary Grendel Tells and X-Wing Rogue Squadron writer Darko McCon and Punisher and X-Men artist Frank Tehran tell the tale of a colonial marine sent to clean out an infestation. He's got a job to do, a pulse bomb with a 45-second detonator, and the clock's ticking. Plot Inside a facility an unnamed Marine finds himself the sole survivor of a disastrous operation involving a xenomorph outbreak. After setting a bomb to detonate in 45 seconds inside a hive, he attempts to flee, before coming face to face with the Queen. Their skirmish is promptly interrupted by the bomb exploding, ending in the Marine being drenched by acid blood. Suddenly, the Marine awakens inside the hangar of his dropship. The prior events merely a nightmare moments before his actual combat drop on the facility. This is a fairly lame, silent story, so I don't know why I'd spend a lot of time talking about the writer who didn't provide a script. Plus, he's going to work on another Alien story later on, so better to talk about him then. Frank Terran, besides doing the cover to the Alien special and this interior story, will only contribute some pages to Havoc, which had a ton of artists. It's going to be very easy to miss him later on, so probably ought to address him now. Never was a big fan of his work. He did a Sabretooth special, and uh, my buddy Max, younger brother, Sabretooth's one of his favorite characters back when he read comics. I don't remember if he liked this much or not. I think not, but maybe, you know, the guy's got kind of a violent, gritty, artist sketchbooky style. It's not a bad fit for aliens, but because there's no, or there's very few panel borders in the story, it just feels like you're looking through somebody's notebook. It doesn't feel like a proper story. The progression isn't that great. There's too many explosions, obscuring art. It all just feels like a cheat. And you can read the damn thing in the time it would take you to piss. It's like the way they used to describe Jeff Loeb's scripts. It's got a gimmick. You either like it or you don't. Simple as that. 
Elder Gods was based on the works of influential American horror fantasy writer H.P. Lovecraft, specifically his Cthulhu Mythos, on which the fictional god Tulatu is based. Publisher's Summary A religious sect uncovers what they believe to be a holy idol, but everything turns to holy hell when they realize the true nature of the enormous statue. Swamp Thing writer Nancy A. Collins and negative burn artist Leif Jones offer a twisted story about the strength and weakness of blind faith. Plot For over 75 years, the inhabitants of Earth have been voyaging to the stars in search of fresh resources for their polluted and overcrowded home world. For the past 15 years, Omnitech has toiled to shape the arid surface of Myra City 4, and by 2099, the outpost on Myra City was home to 532 of their hard-laboring employees and recruits, which included a rebellious mystic sect known as the Esoteric Brotherhood of Tulatu. When a colony foreman assigns the esoterics to a 90-day quarry detail, their leader, High Father Lumley, meets with the chief claiming that quarry detail is menial labor and that Omnitech is deliberately demeaning him and his people. She tells him he and his people are bound by contract to do as they are told by the company. 23 days into their quarry detail, the esoterics had uncovered an object buried beneath the sands, a fossilized xenomorph queen and its well-preserved hive. Lumley and his brotherhood believed this to be the lost city of Arlek, the crypt of Tulatu. This was the resurrection they had traversed the gulfs of space to witness. Lumley performed a sermon that ended with each member of the Brotherhood sacrificed himself to a face hugger while chanting Tuli Tu. Ten days later, the esoterics returned to the Omnitech compound with ovomorphs hidden in their cargo, which they used against the colonists of Myra City before allowing the aliens within them to burst from their chests. It took Omnitech 15 years and an estimated 10 billion credits to establish its Myra City outpost. It took less than three days for its destruction. It took four and a half years for the nearest Omnitech cruiser to reach the colony, only to find the horribly mutilated remains of 104 colonists, but there were no clues as to the other 428 Omnitech employees and recruits. This story worked a little bit better for me. For starters, it's a story and not just a happenstance. I like Leaf Jones' art. He's good at doing horror. Got a Corbin quality to his stuff. Hasn't worked a lot. He's done a little bit for Verotic. He did a book called Blood and Kisses that he'd created. Mostly, my understanding is that he does stuff for White Wolf's World of Darkness and other role-playing horror stuff. He apparently has contributed to some of the recent incarnation of Valiant's books as well. Unfortunately, aside from uh, some pages in Havoc, he doesn't do anything else with aliens or much else in general. Nancy A. Collins I'm a little bit more familiar with. She was one of the few female writers working in comics in the late 80s, early 90s. I know I read some of her Swamp Thing stuff. She worked a lot more for Verotic. In particular, she had the Sunglasses After Dark series, which I want to say was an adaptation of a novel series that she had done, and most of her work in comics has been related to horror. She did Topps's Jason vs. Leatherface miniseries. She did do a Predator miniseries, Hell Comes a Walkin', which I think is set during the American Civil War. She had a book called Dom Pier for Vertigo. Vague to remember that one. I might have read it. Definitely I would have read her story from Harlan Ellison's Dream Corridor. I was following that book. But again, I think besides Sunglasses After Dark, probably more so, in fact, she's known for being one of the Swamp Thing writers. Had a fairly long run, a couple of years. Probably being is she was the writer who was doing the book when it transitioned from just a mature reader's title within the DC universe to the Vertigo and going beyond that partition that was created back in the early 90s. 
the thing is, is Swamp Thing needed to be a vertical book at that time because it just had no traction, no heat. Collins presided over a period of Swamp Thing where it was sort of post-relevant. There were people who read Swamp Thing that I think were fans of hers, but it just nothing seemed to come out of that period that lit up the fan base. The transition to Vertigo didn't seem to really catch fire. And so it seems like she's sort of contributed to the long, slow death of that title. But interesting idea to have the Lovecraft element mixed into Aliens, especially because Geiger probably borrowed from Lovecraftian imagery himself. Problem is, is if you read Alien stuff or you, you watch the media, you know there are certain things you can expect from the Aliens that in order for her story to work, she has to forget happens. Like for instance, at the end when the supervisor is complaining about having a sore throat she thinks she's coming down with something obviously what she has is an actual chest burster but we all know that she would have turned over in her bed and found the corpse of a face hugger you know that morning probably would have alerted her that that's not a cockroach you know there's something else going on here this is a world that operates without any prior knowledge of the aliens which means that they go through the motions of discovering an alien wondering what that is being freaked out after having spent several years reading one alien story after another it's really hard for me to get to a headspace of we don't know what aliens are especially when it's taking place in a time period that seems so similar to the first two movies it's like we we kind of moved past this thing we we saw those movies already so it feels a little redundant in that respect so it's a cute idea not a bad short story didn't mind it but it didn't blow me away either and it contributes to the alien special being not so special not dissimilar from this episode not one of my favorite episodes of the show very perfunctory done almost against my will you want to help create an actual alien special reach out to me on social media tell me you'd like to be a guest on the show you don't have to read anything that's what the omnibuses are for you can tell me about the movies you watched or just what you think about the property and i can put that into an omnibus episode so you don't get it subjected to another one of these specials if you do have some reading that you want to do let me know we can get you booked you know it doesn't even have to be anytime soon it'll be years down the line i will say that the one thing there is competition for are the crossovers there are plenty of people who want to do well i don't want to say plenty there's there's no plenty relating to anything related to my Aliens podcast, but there are a number of people, generally speaking, who have at least expressed an interest in doing a crossover episode. You know, if you want to maybe do one of the lesser Aliens books to sort of earn your credits to get to do one of the more sought after ones, then that's one way to go. So just like I said, reach out because without folks like you, you're stuck with shows like this. Fucking Dead, Andy Kuhn, AJ Lowe, Between the Pages Blog, Billy Hines, CH, Carlos Cruz, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Chunky Apps, The Comic Crush, Dario Oliveira, Dear Watchers, a Marvel What If podcast, Del Dracula, Dread Pirate Rum Swizzle, Dirk Ashton, Ed Moore, El Romero Mero, Exploring Our National Parks, History of Comics on Film, Hicks But Look for Flanger in the Refugee Camps, who added Groovy, Irredeemable Shag, Jeffrey Brown, slash Julio Raul, Jimmy Allen, J.A. Books, Keith G. Baker, Lamar the Revenger, Mark Bromage, Mega Gears X, Mike has sent aliens to me, Moose Matson, the Hobo with the High Kick, MOS 6502, Rihanna Mike, Richard Field, Superbound, Sven Day, Tomaskari, Ufta, Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast, Zarabi, and Zwit Jameson. Odell also added on Tumblr, I know a guy that was on this episode. Spoiler, I am the guy. Alien Sacrifice is a great horror comic and you should read it. And he added on Twitter, Good news, Roldspine let me back on the Dark Horse Presents Aliens podcast to walk through Alien Sacrifice. Get your religious baggage, your cognitive bias, and chuck them out the window. 
This has been the Roald Spine Podcast. All audio samples are believed covered under fair use laws. No copyright infringement is intended. Coming in March, Dark Horse presents Predator Omnibus with guest Billy Hines.